that's the kind of attitude I want people to have with OKRs. And that is, we're going to come into this. Don't forget everything you've ever learned. Don't be ignorant. But don't be worried about saying, hey, we built this thing last course and we thought it'd be reusable. But now we look at our OKRs. We don't quite need it. Hmm. Uh, be prepared to look fresh at what the OKRs are, what you're trying to achieve, what, what the product owner wants, what the feedback can Look at all that afresh. Don't be restricted by what's gone before and be prepared to restart your thinking process and say, look, we have a quarter here. This is day one of the quarter. Hmm. What are we, how are we going to move forward on this? And, you know, every day of the quarter, you want to be asking yourself that question. You are listening to the Align Remotely podcast, the show dedicated to helping you lead distributed teams under difficult circumstances. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade. As a practitioner, I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Today we are continuing the conversation with Agile coach or guide, Alan Kelly. And we cover topics such as how to nudge teams into being more ambitious, how to choose metrics without distorting incentives or cross-department collaboration in larger companies, and also why digital means something else than you probably thought it means, and how it affects how we manage. So without further ado, here's Alan. We're talking about ambition. So how do you get teams to be more ambitious when they're doing their planning? I don't have the answers. <laughs> um, I, I, and the more I've looked at this, the more I've thought about this, I, the more I think it comes down to, and I'm sure many of your readers will know this, psychological safety. Which, which is a big topic at the moment. Amy Edmondson's written the book on it. You know, fearless organization. Fearless yeah. organization, next one, yeah. There are some organizations, even some teams, which value predictability more than anything. So as much as that OKRs are trying to make you be ambitious, there are some people who value predictability more than that. One of the teams I was working with last year, I was on a conference call. This was before conference calls got trendy and everyone did them. It just happened to be a conference call. <laughs> and uh, there was a, another team that um, used the product my team was creating. They said, well, what, what are we going to get next? What are, they, what are your objectives? Okay. And I remember on this call us outlining the objectives for the coming quarter. And at the end of the quarter, the project manager on this other team said, um, said and how much certainty do you have you're going to meet these objectives? How reliable can we take these? And I said, oh, I think, I think we'll do seven out of ten. And this is the team like, what? You can't tell us. Which seven have, which ten are you going to get? You know, we, we want predictability. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is, is yeah, OKRs are about ambition. If you want predictability, you can use the OKR method. Let's just make sure that you say that you have to predictability because most people have to be ambition. So, First of all, you, you're going to need an organization that uh, recognizes value and values ambition. And you're going to have to explain to people that if it's predictability they're after, uh, 
this isn't set up for predictability and either they need to change or we need to change the system. And then when it comes down to individuals, I've seen so many people over the years who, who have been scarred by every time a developer has ever been asked for an estimate and they've not met it, which is like every day of the week. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they carry those scars around with them. And I think as an organization, you've really got to start paying attention to this thing called psychological safety. And if I'm being really truthful, and I hope they're not listening, or maybe I don't, this organization I was with last year, I don't think they appreciated that. If they did appreciate it, it wasn't really being spelled out. If you're going to run this application called OKRs, you need an operating system that provides psychological safety. Yeah, as an absolute baseline, absolutely, yeah. If people can't say what they think, then it makes it difficult to really do much else. The first point on that, I won't go into how you achieve psychological safety. Go, go read the book. It's much better than me. <laughs> but what I would say is a starting point is you've got to divorce compensation, bonuses, remuneration, pay from hitting OKRs. And I think every author I've read about OKRs says this. You mm -hmm. do not bonus people on hitting OKRs. You do not tie OKR success to into performance reviews and annual appraisals because that is exactly where you would get um, what's called goal displacement or mm -hmm. good hearts law I referred to before where, where people make sure they hit the target to get their salary, their bonus. You have to divorce OKRs from that. Unfortunately, every HR department on the planet seems to look at AOKRs and say, oh, material for performance reviews and bonuses. <laughs> so, so if you are in an organization that's implementing OKRs, what would you tie bonuses to, for example? I'd either not have bonuses or I would tie bonuses to profitability of perhaps the whole company or if it's a very big company to the profitability or revenue is a better one of the actual product. I think it's Mary Poppendike in, in Lean Software Development. She has this great advice that you tie bonuses and similar things one level above where people are. You don't, you don't incentivize the immediate thing, you incentivize contributing something bigger. If you incentivize the immediate thing, people will get very good at meeting that, mm -hmm. but the side effects will cause damage elsewhere. It's one level in terms of within the organizational structure or? In Mary's case, she was saying one level within the organizational structure. Mm -hmm. And that is a starting point. That is where I'd look. Mm -hmm. um, years ago, I used to work for a, a small software company. And I remember they tied our annual bonuses just to plain profit or maybe revenue. I can't remember. But, and that seemed excellent to me. That was a way of saying, look, you are an individual, you're part of this system, you're part of the company, you need to do your work, but actually you also need to help the overall enterprise work on stuff. And mm -hmm. it seems a very fair way of doing it. The incentives are right. When you tie them too closely to individual performance, mm -hmm. you get, well, banks are a classic example, aren't they? People manage to, to get their bonuses in banks, but we see banks again and again getting into difficulty and having rogue traders. Yeah, London Whale and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and never forget, those of you old enough to remember Bearings Bank, which went belly up in the late 90s, they made a rather cheap film of it. It's illustrated well in that. And the, the rogue trader actually had the developer sitting next to him. 
Mm. And he actually got him to create a new account in, in MS Access, I think it was, and dump all the bad trades in there. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, once you knew there was another account in the Access, of course it's Access, it's Access or Excel. You know, they're all dumped in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the picture was completely different. <laughs> so speaking of incentives, yeah. in the context of OKRs, uh, how do you... How do you align incentives across departments? I mean, maybe this is a, a, a wider question of just external dependencies and how they influence the outcomes. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Again, I don't have a complete answer. And, and everywhere is different. Hmm. Yeah. Two things I would say. First of all, the, the people, I wouldn't say at the top because it could be halfway down, the people who are in charge with deciding what it is you're trying to achieve, what your mission, your BHAG, your massively transformative purpose, whatever you want to call it. The people who decide that need to articulate that. And they need to say, look, as an organization, as a group of teams, we are going after this. And actually, I don't want them to phrase that in OKRs. I want them to phrase that in fancier language. I want them to leave the space for the teams to work out for themselves. So first of all, we all need a common goal. There's an old Steve Jobs quote saying, as long as we all agree that we're going to San Francisco, everything's okay, whatever route we take. It's when some people think we're going to San Francisco and some people think we're going to San Jose that the problems start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, you need to get a very clear line on, on where you're going. Mm. The second thing is, when it comes to dependencies and interrelationships, I think it's less about managing these things as it is about eliminating them. Hmm. We spend a lot of time managing dependencies. We spend a lot of time creating masterful planning systems to get people to align and agree and interlink. And actually, however good your planning is, it can all fail when the slowest team doesn't deliver what they're expected to. Far better, I think, put your energy into creating independence to actually start to separate those teams and allow them to move at their own speed. Mm -hmm. Now, people get really scared at this point because we've all been taught that reuse is a sacred cow. Mm -hmm. And perhaps what I'm saying here is sometimes you don't want to be reusing stuff. You do want to be reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. Because when two teams invent their own wheel, they're responsible for their own wheel and they can move as fast as they can keep their own wheel together. When they start sharing the same wheel, you've now introduced a dependency. And now one of the teams has the ability to slow down the other team. So I think part of the solution here is to promote independence. Now, I know you're not always going to want to do that. And I know it wouldn't make sense to, for us all to go and write our own spring framework. But even in that analogy there is the solution. We use prepackaged software all the time. We used to spring framework. The, we all used Mac OS or Windows, Microsoft Office. We use package software. Where you've got big pieces of functionality, which are used by multiple teams, you probably want to see them as packages that need to be managed and treated like products in their own right mm -hmm. with their own, their own teams. They're not an afterthought, a second thing for teams to do. So as I don't have a complete solution to dependency management and relationships, I just say one, 
make sure you all agree on a common goal. And again, OKRs can help there because you can look at the different OKRs and say, do they all point in the same direction? Mm. Two, reduce dependencies and eliminate them wherever you can. And three, when there are dependencies, call them out and run them as their own thing. Yeah, I've always played with the idea of applying dependency inversion in the context of organizations, just defining the boundaries well and thinking of systems in that way. For example, pulling in freelancers to to do certain bits of the work. It's the same kind of thing. If you have that well-defined onboarding process for freelancers, then yeah. you can have this, a similar arrangement between departments that are self-sufficient. Centers. One thing I will caution you against is platforms or infrastructure. Where there is some common component which the organization has and is used by multiple teams in that organization, mm -hmm. the mistake I've seen so often is they say, hey, this is purely a technical thing. Yeah. Therefore, this team produces it. And therefore, the product owner can be one of the devs. Or the product owner can be somebody who used to be a dev, will now upgrade them, as it were, to a product manager. I think that is completely the wrong approach. The idea that where you've got a piece of platform infrastructure, you can just turn over to the techies. Mm -hmm. You don't need a strong product owner. I think it's wrong. I'd say, in fact, you need your strongest product owners in those positions because those are the products which are furthest from the actual customers. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you need people in there who are actually very good at getting to customers. You need people in there who are very good at understanding value and understanding how team A is going to use the same product as team B, but they're going to discern value in different ways. And somebody who's got the facilitation skills to say, hey, team B, I know you're asking for this, but team A is asking for something else and I'm going to give them priority. So rather than staffing these platform teams with weak product owners put your strongest people there i have seen this kind of thing work out well on a trading platform and the main concern customers had was that it was too slow and in fact getting devs who knew the performance side of it really well and also understood enough of the customer pain they they ended up being able to create something that was a lot of value to customers without necessarily having additional support from let's say the business side for lack of a better yeah. term I think that is more of an exception than the rule. Yeah, <laughs> I tend to agree. Yeah. You also, to bring it back to, to OKRs, you're also touching on something else I think I say in the book, which I think will prove a bit controversial, is that I steer people away from doing pre-work. I, I want people to come into their OKRs for the quarter and then to almost start with a blank sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. I think so often when we do pre-work, whether it's by writing a convenient backlog or designing an architecture or something, the pre-work we've done has shaped the way we approach the problem and shaped the way we're going to try and create a solution. And yeah. if you stand there on day one of the quarter and say, hey, we've got this amazing, this OKR looks impossible. How are we going to achieve it? There may be ways of doing it. But if you've got all this baggage of previous work, then you're constrained. And also that previous work doesn't come for free. Somebody's yeah. done it, and somebody's done it in advance, which means that when they were doing it in advance, they weren't contributing to the last quarter because they were doing something else. <laughs> Towards the end of writing the book, I stumbled across something I'm sure you're familiar with, Luke, um, Jeff Bezos's idea of it's always day one. And this idea that it's always yes, day 97, one. 97 letter to shareholders. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of 
attitude I want people to have with OKRs, and that is we're going to come into this. Don't forget everything you've ever learned. Don't be ignorant, but don't be worried about saying, hey, we built this thing last course and we thought it'd be reusable, but now we look at our OKRs, we don't quite need it. Hmm. Uh, be prepared to look afresh at what the OKRs are, what you're trying to achieve, what, what the product owner wants, what the feedback can Look at all that afresh. Don't be restricted by what's gone before and be prepared to restart your thinking process and say, look, we have a quarter here. This is day one of the quarter. Hmm. What are we, how are we going to move forward on this? And, you know, every day of the quarter, you want to be asking yourself that question. Have you heard of the term zero-based thinking? Yeah. Yeah. The question that's useful there is knowing what you know now, would you, would you, would you start doing the same thing you were just doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think we can actually prove this because, you know, you and I, Luke, we, we've been in this industry long enough. We see the new people coming in now and remember that we were the new people 20 years ago and we are full of these bright ideas. And we, we can sometimes get a little bit cynical about the new people entering the industry. And we also beat ourselves up as an industry about how we don't remember our failings. Mm. But I think partly because we are an industry where the technology is always advancing and changing. And partly because it's advancing change, we do pull in a lot of new people, sometimes young people, sometimes people have come afresh to it. And, and they come with a lot of that zero thinking simply because they don't know. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, you and me, we say, God, that will never work. You're going to throw yourself off a cliff. <laughs> and, you know, nine out of 10 times, we're probably right. But, you know, once in a while, people try stuff and they do something and they get amazing results. Yeah, there was this amazing book by Arthur C. Clarke called Profiles of the Future that you wrote in the 60s. The, the premise is just that he goes back and looks at various prognosticators and futurists in the 30s who were saying that it's impossible that we're going to have a transatlantic flight, depending on the exact thing, even by the 60s was already completely commonplace. If you want to be accountable <laughs> in terms of making broad claims, then that's the way to really do it, I guess. Yeah. A lot of this for me is summed up in the word digital. I expect there's probably a few people groaning there when I said the word digital. And I must admit, until a few years ago, when people used the word digital to me, I kind of groaned. I thought, save your breath. It's not necessary. Those, those analog computers never caught on. <laughs> um, but I came to realize that the technology we have today, and it's digital technology, yes, is so much more powerful than the technology we had even 30 years ago, that it's something new. When people outside of the technology, the traditional technology base use the word digital, what they are saying is, my world now looks like your world. What those marketeers and accountants and HR and salespeople and all the rest of them are saying when they say the word digital is they're saying, oh, my God, sales, marketing, HR accounts now looks an awful lot more like software and software development mm. than it used to. Yeah, yeah. Software is eating the world and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and somebody said to me, um, when people use the word digital, what they really mean is software. So digitization means a softwareization. You digitize a process, you turn it into software. And that is so true. Hmm. And let me just give you a couple of statistics. 1981, IBM launched the PC. It had 29,000 transistors in its Intel 8088 processor. 
it had 64 kilobytes of 640 kilobytes of memory max, mm -hmm. two 720 floppy disks, and an 80 by 25 green screen. The iPhone 12 has 12 billion transistors in its CPU, 64 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of static storage. If you took the components of an iPhone XS two years ago and looked at what that would have cost in 1991, to buy an iPhone XS in 1991 would have been approximately $30 million. Hmm. And you're walking around with it in your pocket complaining it cost you $600 or $700. It's in the world I entered and the world you entered. It was that IBM PC world. And it ain't that now. That increase in power, one of the things it means is that we need new ways of working. We need new ways of managing. We need new processes. The idea that you could run business processes as you did 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the way you manage people 40 years ago be applicable today, it might be, but you have to question that to start off with. And this is why I think ideas like, you know, I, I've been talking about OKRs today, but you had Jodie Thompson on, on the cast a few weeks ago, and she was talking about results-only work environments. And a friend of mine, Mike Burrows, he does a gender shift. Uh, he talks about outcomes. What we're getting towards is this world where it's less about looking at what you're doing and the tasks and the time you're spending and what is the, the outcome. The resources are now so great that humans are key to this. And we really want to make sure we won't be getting as what we want the right thing out of them. It's, that's why our management processes are having to change. For someone in a company who wants to get started with OKRs and they're already running Agile, what are some small things they could try or something that quickly yields yeah. something useful? The easy way to think about it is that you know, the OKR is typically set and reviewed every three months. So it's almost like having an extra long sprint. I, I, I don't think quite is that. I think it, it, it's slightly different, but you, you want to put a cadence, an additional three-month cadence on top of your current sprints. Mm. And for me, that means six sprints, and then take some time to stop, review, reflect, retrospect, and set yourself targets. The, the tricky thing for any one individual is this isn't really for you to do alone. This is a team sport. Agile has always been a team sport, and, and OKRs more than ever, it's a team endeavor. So I think you, you, need to, you need to get your team willing to try doing this. And you need to particularly get your, your product owner involved. And hopefully your product owner, once they understand that this is all about going after customer needs, delivering benefits for customers, and thinking above the story level, I would hope that the product owners will, will, will jump at the chance. And you want to say to the product owner, okay, let's, let's, instead of thinking on the sprint, sprint, sprint level, let's think what meaty things should we try and achieve in the next three months? And set yourself some objectives around that. Do a little bit of a breakdown to, to key results, you know, and maybe some hypotheses you want to test. It might be some things you want to build. You might want to even time box some of those key results. So you might say, we will allow two weeks for refactoring. You could, if you get a phraseology right, you can say, a key result is that the software internals have improved, 
but we've only improved them by two weeks worth. There'll always be more refactoring you could do, but we'll allow two weeks. You know, there's different ways you can phrase key results anyway. Think about some of those big meaty objectives. Now, I'm going to say three. For me, you don't go more than three objectives, and each objective has three key results. Mm -hmm. if, if you put my arm behind my back and lift it up and make me scream, I guess I'll accept four objectives, and I will accept four key results per objective. But do the math. Four objectives with four key results each is 16. You've got 13 weeks and a quarter. So they aren't going to be that big and meaty, are they? So I would rather you were close to three objectives with about three key results each, but that's your ballpark. I know that's tough, but it is by stripping away that other stuff and deciding what you're going to focus on by saying no to other things that you achieve the focus and you achieve the communication and you achieve the coherence. If you've got, you know, 10 objectives, each of which has three or four key results, and you're back to the backlog problem. So OKRs, like good strategy, is about deciding what you're going to say no to and what you're going to put to one side. There's, there's a whole bunch of issues over business as usual and how you deal with that. I'm going to put that to one side. But think, what are the things we want to make a difference for? What do we want to deliver to our customers? What are the big, meaty things? It's breaking down a little bit. And every sprint for that quarter, when you go in, you look at your OKRs, you tick off what you can tick off, you decide what you're going to work on, and then you take this day one mentality and you say, right, given where we are today, given how much time we have left, what can we do that will make a difference, that will move us towards that key result, that objective? Forget whether it's in the backlog or not. So I think, you know, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about this for your team, I think you can run an experiment. You can say, look, for the next quarter, we'll try doing this stuff. Much outside of that, you're going to need to start getting buy-in from the stakeholders around you, particularly those stakeholders who have authority over you and usually go by the name of manager. You're going to get other people needing to buy into it, and you're going to need to create more changes. So I think as an individual, I think you can do stuff with OKRs. I think it's much more difficult to get started with OKRs than it is with Agile generally, because OKRs are, by their definition, more strategic, bigger, more team-orientated. So does it make sense to map those down to individual-based uh, outcomes and key results, or do you advise against that initially? I'd go against that completely. <laughs> there was one team I worked with where... Um, effectively it was five or six people on the team and in effect everybody had their own objective and everyone had their own key results you know we we've long in agile talked about cross-functional multidisciplinary teams and all that if you're gonna have okrs earmarked for particular individuals you're not gonna get the team spirit you're not gonna get work flowing across them i'd even go as far as that i'm not keen on individuals having their own private okrs for additional work it's a team sport. So, yes, it might be that one of your OKRs involves a lot of database work. And it might be that your database expert has run off their feet and the other team, the rest of the team is sitting there twiddling their fingers. Well, I would hope the other team members would find a way of being able to help the database person. 
I would hope they might say, you know what, I'll go read a book on databases the weekend and I'll try and help. I would hope people would recognize that it may be quickest if the database expert does all the database work. But you know what? If the database expert isn't getting started on stuff because they're too busy doing something else, if somebody else does a half the speed, they may well finish it quicker than if you wait for the database expert to become available and then do it. And again, this is why I think OKRs are a good fit with Agile. And I think they can promote that team-based thinking. It's a team approach. Nobody crosses the finish line alone. It's a team thing. So where do people find out more about the book? Right now, the book is in the final stages of writing. I'm just doing some final copy editing, which my hard deadline for that is December the 25th. And so I, I should be finishing with my changes by Christmas. And in January, it's going to go to a copy editor because I will apologize to your readers now. I, I'm dyslexic. So my grammar, punctuation, spelling is all over the place. But I have a great copy editor. So um, Steve will get it for copy editing in, in January. So you should see the finished product in February. Right now, you can buy the book on LeanPub, leanpub.com slash agile OKRs. And you'll find it and you can buy it for I think five, six dollars at a moment. And whenever an update comes out, you'll get that for free. When the copy edit is finished and we've got that final electronic version, that will hit LeanPub first of all. Then it will appear on Amazon. And sometime after that, so probably March time, there'll be a physical version and an audio version out. So right now, right now, December 2020, look on LeanPub. Um, in f from February onwards, you'll probably find it on Amazon. Okay, great. And where else can people connect with you? What are your favorite places to hang out? Well, I hang out on Twitter, but you might get some really insightful comments from me on Twitter, or you might get me moaning about the government. <laughs> uh, if you Google Alan Kelly, you usually find me. My, my website is alankelly.net. You should know I have two L's in Alan, A-L-L-A-N. So I have a blog on the website that gets updated a couple of times a month. I tweet too much. I'm there on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Please join me there. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luke. That was a great episode, and I always enjoy my chats with Alan, so I'm glad you had a chance to listen in and also hopefully enjoy it. I think the main thing which Alan touched upon that is super important is this reference he had to always day one from Amazon, how much that actually affects how we manage in organizations on a day-to-day -day basis. So not getting stuck in just constantly maintaining the status quo and the sunk cost in, in creating it, but always thinking about how things can be improved and changed. And it's nice that OKRs support that ability to be able to create that change, for lack of a better term. Tune in next time. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Align Remotely podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.